Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Uh, so, you know, my grand plan for today was to come in and do the last, I think it was six names on the Old Man Squad review. And uh, then I realized that my schedule was going to be a little bit tighter today. And it just... I don't know. I wanted to do that one as a simulcast with YouTube as well. I wanted to be able to kind of linger on some of the names a tad more. And so understanding that because that just fit Tuesday's show better, we're going to do that tomorrow instead. And today, I'm going to flip the two shows, and instead we're going to talk about the Orlando Magic. Next team on our teams in review. And I think at that point we'll have basically caught up with uh, the articles coming out over at Sports Ethos HQ. The great Keston Paul, ladies and gentlemen, put out an Orlando Magic recap piece that's over at SportsEthos.com. It is entirely free. This is not in any kind of premium thing, so you can check in on that. It breaks down how every player did, the coach, the team, etc. And it's a fantastic... Honestly, you should start with that, and then this podcast is basically like the companion piece for that we're also going to talk about the nba playoffs because we got some new series starting that we didn't have data on on friday when we did that show we were able to cover a lot of the games going on we talked about everything happening over the weekend but still as of that point multiple series had not yet been illuminated and we were waiting on numbers on Sixers celtics because we didn't know what the deal was with joel Embiid, who it sounds like right now is doubtful to open up that series. So plenty to talk about on the playoff side. Let's start with the Magic, though. I think most folks listening to this pod prefer the uh, discussion of the fantasy basketball realm, so we'll do the the reality stuff second. I feel like, by all accounts, we have to just start the show by saying the Magic had a good year. They finished at 34-48. and they lost their last four games in a row, which was, a, you know, a little bit of a shame because even if they went 500 in those two games, you talk about a 36-win season for that club, that really would have been, I mean, it still was, I thought, a pretty nice feather in the cap for the players involved, for Coach Mosley, all that stuff. But, you know, considering the fact that they finished up the year kind of falling on their faces a little bit, that was... A slight sour taste in what was overall a largely successful year. And this is actually what we talked about going into the season, which was when a team already has a number of interesting players in place, and then they also get the first overall pick, there isn't really the strong pull to keep tanking. I wrote, you guys know that I write up the season win totals for every team in typically August of every offseason. I had the Magic over 25 and a half, which I I didn't think they were going to get to, what did I just say, they were at 34 wins. I thought they were going to get to like 27, 28. But the last thing, the last thing I said on this this write-up was the tank is a fear, but I just think there's too much skill on this team to not get to 26 to 27 wins. Plus, they already won the lottery. This is a quote. Would they really go for back-to-back? And then I wrote Dan's note. They could. Still, I'd peg them to grab a few surprise wins, play some fun games, and be among the worst teams in the league, but still competitive. And they were a little bit better than that. 
But that's the thing. When a team already has talent and then wins the lottery, there's this sort of unspoken rule, really since the process, that's like, look, if you have your first overall pick and that dude is healthy and on the floor, the Sixers, they did their thing by saying, oh, you know, hand wave, hand wave, look, our lottery, our first overall picks, they're not even healthy. They're not going to play for like two years. So they were able to keep tanking even after they had Embiid, Ben Simmons, all that stuff. They, they just didn't play those guys for a year. Injury, real or made up, it doesn't really matter. They didn't get in. Magic got themselves Paolo Boncaro. He was healthy. And they already have all these other guys. And Jonathan Isaac only played for like a month before re-injuring himself this year. So there's even more stuff going on than that. But Markel Fultz looked great as he returned off the, the there was a foot injury coming into the year. Franz Wagner didn't really take a step forward, but he showed himself to be quite durable, which is useful. Wendell Carter Jr. has been solid enough. From a fantasy standpoint, we have to try to figure out what this means going forward. Because this year, it meant that a lot of Magic had good but not great fantasy seasons. But that wasn't because of what was expected of the team. That was because of general overall fantasy ability. These aren't guys who have extraordinarily robust fantasy potential as a whole. Paolo Boncaro averaged 20 points, 7 boards, and almost 4 assists per ballgame but was a terrible drain on field goal, free throw, and medium-sized drain on turnover, and didn't really get that much in the defensive stat department, and didn't really shoot the three ball. He profiled heavily as a points league option. Heavily. Franz Wagner, because of the addition of Boncaro and the return of a healthy Markel Fultz, he didn't really see his role change very much. There was, I thought, a hope that I didn't fully buy into. If you guys remember, I was kind of low on Franz coming into this year. That he was just going to get this massive usage bump because he looked great in, was it the, the Olympics, I think, was before this season started, right? It wasn't FIBA games. It was the Olympics this last offseason. Franz looked great in international play. And uh, so there was this hope that it was going to kind of carry over and it was he was going to grab the reins on this team. But that was just never going to happen with Boncaro coming in and Fultz coming back. There was just too much. Plus, Jalen Suggs still floating around. He, not doing that much, but floating around. Cole Anthony, he's a usage guy when he's on the floor. There were just too many mouths to feed in the more traditional sense. So a guy that relies on scoring volume at decent percentages, if you don't give him the ball all the time, there isn't a way to turn that into great fantasy value. So Franz was, by totals, terrific this year. He played in 80 of their 82 ball games. That's wonderful. But he was 104 on a per-game basis. He's like the perfect wedge driver between head-to-head leaguers and Roto Gamescap folks. Roto Gamescap folks are looking at it like, terrific, sarcastically. I get a 10th rounder, 9th rounder, I guess. That's a 9th rounder. For 80 games, great. I don't get to fill in anything either. I mean, that's the type of player you want to use as a fill-in for 80 however many games you need to fill in around your high upside guys. But on the head-to-head side, you're looking at Franz, you're like, great. He's got a four-game week. I can basically put him in stone for, you know, 70 points, 12 to 15 rebounds, 10 to 15 assists, four steals, a block, six three-pointers, good percentages. Terrific. I love guys that I can etch in stone on my head-to-head side. 
So what does that mean for next year? And we'll try to do this for each guy because I think the Magic do have this kind of player-by-player what's next thing. Well, you know, it's going to come down again to what they get in the draft because the Magic do have a relatively high draft pick. Sixth worst record in the NBA. So as nice as as the jump was for them from true bottom feeder to... Not competitive for the play-in, but uh, lightly competitive for the the play-in. They were, like, equivalent with the teams that were fighting for the play-in and then gave up with three weeks to go. Pacers, Wizards, that Blazers on the other side, that contingent is where the record ended. It's just different path to get there. And look, the Magic were basically a 500 team at home this season. That's pretty good, actually. 20 and 21 on their home floor. Folks, picture this nightmare scenario. You're hosting friends for the big game. It's neck and neck in the fourth quarter, and suddenly you realize you're out of drinks. Ooh, say all of your friends. You start to sweat. Your friends turn on you. You're forced to go on a last-second drink run and end up missing the game-winning touchdown while in line. Oh, no. Terrifying, isn't it? Luckily, you can avoid the drama with Drizzly, the go-to app for drink delivery. With Drizzly, you can shop a huge selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered right to your watch party. Compare prices across multiple stores in your area, find the best deals on game day drinks, and get back to armchair quarterbacking from, you guessed it, your armchair. Download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Must be 21 plus, not available in all locations. I don't know. I'm impressed. I thought they did a good job this year. Maybe I'm being too kind to them. But as far as Franz goes, you assume that the shot, there, there really aren't many shots departing this team. That's what you're looking for. Where is additional usage going to come from? And the answer is no place. They traded the guys or bought them out that took a couple of shots that you'd call like traditional veteran types. Patrick Beverly got traded there. He got bought out. T. Ross got bought out. Everybody else is on contract for this coming year. Like legitimately everybody, except Mo Wagner, I think is not signed. Who cares? Faults. Another year. Wendell, three more years. Even Gary Harris has another year, although he'll likely be traded at some point this coming season, I would think. Maybe not. They'll try to be winning ballgames. They might want a little veteran presence in there. Boncaro, obviously, he's got a long way to go. Suggs, Wagner, Cole Anthony. These guys all have years left because they're all draft picks within the last one to three seasons, except faults. Honest to goodness, I have no idea when Markel Fultz was drafted because I can't tell you what happened since COVID. But regardless, he's under contract for this coming year. And then Jonathan Isaac, who may or may not resurface at some point. Supposedly, he's going to be ready by opening night, but you know, we'll believe it when we see it. He's got two years left. So I, I don't, I just, I, you know, Franz took 14 shots a game this season. That was second on the team behind Boncaro. Even if that sticks, I don't know where the gains can be for Franz. To go from, you know, 104 is where he was, but everybody in that area so clumped in one little pocket 
you know, if his free throw percent ticks up by like 1% or his field goal percent ticks up by 1%, you could see him go from 104 to, you know, 85 to 95 range pretty easily. But anything beyond that is going to take a more substantial bite out of the apple that I don't know that there's bites left in the apple. It's going to have to be very much an internal adjustment for him. And, you know, if you look at the last 20 games of the season or so for Franz, he was number 91, but it's basically the same numbers that it was earlier in the year. Okay, so what about a guy like Cole Anthony, who almost feels like he's the same story? Cole Anthony was number 96 over the last 20 games of the season or so. He was 125 over the entire campaign. And a decent amount of his good came when guys were out. Faults, missing time helped. Suggs missing time helped Cole Anthony quite a bit. When this team was healthy, Cole Anthony, Jalen Suggs, those guys pretty much alternated having decent, viable fantasy lines, which is why he ended at 125. And without terrific durability, that has not been the Cole Anthony calling card, I don't see how he makes sense as someone you're expecting to draft next year in pretty much any format. At least 12-teamers. And that goes for anybody who was ranked lower than him this last season, with the possible exception of Jonathan Isaac. But everybody ranked lower than Cole Anthony on a per-game basis, and I'll list them off for you. Gary Harris, Bull Bull, who had a very fun start to the season, and then, you know, reality set in. Suggs, Mo Wagner. Hey, we, need to, we, we should talk about Paolo Boncaro, um, because that, that's a format-dependent thing. Jonathan Isaac, Chuma Okiki, guys like that. You're not going down that path. But let's look at a couple of those names there because we're saving the uh, the guys that I think will probably get... Yeah, screw that. We'll come back to Fultz and, and Wendell because those are the guys ranked above Franz Wagner this season. Let's talk about the, the key two key names on this roster that were ranked below Franz on a per-game basis. One of them is Jonathan Isaac who played 11 ball games, averaged 11 minutes per game in those 11 games, and then re-hurt himself and missed the rest of the season with uh, a core injury. And this dude just, he's never going to be healthy. Like, there's no head-to-head league on earth where you should be drafting Jonathan Isaac outside of the deepest of deepest of leagues if you get him at, like, pick 300 or later or something like that. Now, Roto, it's a little bit of a different monster because you're kind of treating him like an injury stash in Roto. Even if he actually starts the year healthy, they're not going to ramp him up quickly. It's going to be a lot like what they were doing this season. You're going to see eight minutes, then nine, then ten, and it's going to be like every week it goes up by one. Now, maybe they'll be a little bit looser with it. It does depend on how he feels. But let's say that he does stay healthy for the first eight weeks of the season and his minutes do creep up into the 20 range. We know Jonathan Isaac can be an easy top 100 play in 20 minutes per game and probably more. I mean, you look at his numbers, and this is not me doing a Jonathan Isaac sales pitch on the podcast. I'm just trying to illustrate how how very simple it is for even a marginally healthy Jonathan Isaac to be a fantasy asset. Now, you look back, even if you go to his rookie season where he averaged only about 19-ish minutes per game and no one let him do anything with the basketball, uh, he was still at 5 points, 4 boards, and 2.3 defensive stats in 20 minutes per game. He was at 1.7 defensive stats in 11 minutes per game this year. Last season, before he blew out his leg, he was at 3.9 in full starters minutes. He's a defensive uh, wizard, and that's a reason I would think to squat on him on the Roto side 
and just, again, kind of treat him like the one injured stash. It'll depend a bit on where he gets drafted, but it's going to be super-duper late. But what about Paolo? That one, I feel like my take on Jonathan Isaac is not particularly uh, controversial, which is, like, with the game's cap, you can get away with it. With Boncaro, who was ranked 205th per game this year, played in 72 out of 82, which isn't bad. I think sort of a, a grown man body in a young player, that helps with rookies getting banged up and rookie stuff. And there is what I would call infinite opportunity for improvement for Boncaro. Because everything you look at with him is about whether or not he can improve his efficiency. And you have to believe that he will. In some way. Like, it, it, that doesn't mean that it's going to be this massive, ultra-flying leap season over season. But he's he's just a giant dude. And I know that that's, like, a beyond remedial way to assess a player. But, you know, his college field goal percent was 48 so you can assume that over time, he'll probably begin to work his way back towards that number in some way. He was not a good free throw shooter in college at 73%, and that pretty much stuck here uh, in his rookie NBA season, which I guess is decent that he kept it the same, but he gets to the line all the time. So that's a thing that's going to drag him down quite a bit. Still, you look at Boncaro and you can, you can just point at it and say, look, if he gets rid of the field goal percent hyper drag on his stuff, and he's still getting 15, 16 shots a ball game, going from 42 and change percent up closer to 40. I don't think he's going to get there necessarily in one season, but that's got to be the trajectory he's on. So take him from 42.7 to, I don't know, 45 and change. That jumps him probably four to five rounds of value, that alone, because it's going to increase his scoring, his threes, field goal percent becomes less of a drag. It's actually three categories that all go up at the same time. Or at the very least, two, if you just want to say field goal percentage scoring. I don't know what happens with free throw percent. That's not one that I can just assume is going to magically get better because he's not a great shooter, necessarily. He's not terrible, but he's not with a guy who you're like, oh, Paolo Moncaro, he's got touch. Steals and blocks. Uh, you know, he played 34 minutes a game this year. I, I don't think that we can just magically assume those are going to fix themselves. Maybe they improve. Maybe steals comes up a little bit. Hard to say, although as guys get older, that type of stuff does actually tend to level off and then decrease, but there could be a, a small adjustment year over year. End result of, uh, uh, of all of this is that what I'm saying is I understand why folks are probably going to be targeting him because they're like, look at this dude. He averaged 27 and 4 and just had the worst percentages floating around and had these massive drags and if he improves the sky is very much the limit for him however i don't know that we can just assume all of these things are going to magically get better at the same time usually guys get a little bit better in a couple of things or maybe take a leap in one but not another i can think of basically one example over the last like 15 years of a player fixing a bunch of stuff at the same time and that was brandon ingram who went from being a bad percentages, low steals guy, and then overnight, basically one offseason for New Orleans, he got good at both percentages and his steals went up from like 0.6 to 1 point something. Steals has leveled off, but the percentages have actually held over year over year over year. He fixed three things in one offseason. That never happens. 
He went from being a, you know, a guy who was perennially overdrafted because he could score, but it was inefficiently and didn't get any defensive stats. He went from being like a top 135, 140 range guy to like a top 45 guy. And then the steals have come back down and he settled into that kind of 50, 60, 70 range. Do we think that that happens here in one off season with Paolo Moncaro? No, I don't. I don't think he fixes three things at the same time. I think there's a very reasonable chance that he makes a micro fix on two or a medium-sized fix on one and no fix on the others. But to me, that's only enough to get him from 200 to maybe the 100 range at the absolute best on a per-game basis. Because it also doesn't feel like if someone else of substantial interest comes in in the draft that his shots are going to go up from 16 to 18 or 19. Like, there's just too many things going on. And then because Boncaro is going to be really good in points leagues and better in 8-cat than 9, but, you know, not by a ton, he's going to have an ADP that's too high. It's going to be dragged up by leagues that are non-category based. So I would not expect to go into next year drafting Boncaro uh, unless he goes way lower than I expect, which I, I just I don't think that's going to happen. There's too much name power and he scores too much. Well, let's talk about the two players that, in my opinion, are the two most interesting ones going into next year, and that's Markel Fultz and Wendell Carter Jr. Fultz finished at number 90 on a per-game basis, but definitely finished the year stronger than that. That was over the entire season. Uh, I thought Fultz down the stretch was the best player on the team. Wendell Carter Jr. Uh, actually similarly ha was in the 100 range, just like Wagner during the regular season, but actually finished the year better than that. If you kind of look at like the last, uh, I'd say like 20 games or, go, or so, uh, that Wendell was in the 85 range because the steals were a little bit better. That was basically the one jump. And then Fultz over his last 30 games was actually number 67. With, by the way, Markel Fultz told himself into like a prototype for the old man squad. Good field goal and free throw percent. I know you're not getting threes out of your point guard here, but... Who the crap cares if it's a big positive in both percentages? That was really something. I don't know that Fultz can keep up the uh, the free throw number in the mid-80s. We've seen the free throw stuff kind of go in and out for him at times. But even if you look at, if you take that, uh, that run for Markel and you eliminate the free throw positive, just call that like a net neutral, that still puts him in the 80 range. At about 15, 3, and 6 with a steal and a half. Great field goal percent. Turnovers kind of held in check. Not terrible, but uh, not great. Um, and about half a blocker per game as well. He's a decent shot blocker out of that point guard spot. What I don't know with Fultz is where the hell he's going to get drafted next year. Is he going to get drafted in the 60s because folks did see him go on like a month-long top 60 level run? Is he going to go in the 80s, which is where everything kind of leveled off for him? Is he going to fall beyond that? I doubt it because he's a point guard. Point guards never fall. But I do think that there's, again, you know, assuming the Magic don't draft a point guard, assuming they don't bring in someone to push faults, what we did see this year is that when he came back from his injury, he missed, like, he got hurt right before the season started, uh, missed basically, like, the first 15 to 20 games of the year, and then he pretty much played the rest of the way. He didn't skip back-to-backs. You know, his 60 out of 82 games this year was... I think a little bit misleading. Now, you did have to sit through a lot of ramp-up games as he was kind of getting his sea legs underneath him. But once he, got to, once he got his sea legs, 
which took, I'd argue, month, month and a half, from you know January-ish on, he was terrific. Starters minutes almost every single ball game. Elite steals on good field goal percent. Elite field goal percent for a point guard, frankly. And you just got to go find your three-pointers elsewhere. So I kind of like Markel Fultz going into next year. Uh, barring him going in like the 50 range. If someone's like, oh, there's room for massive improvement here for Markel. I don't really think that's the case. Because again, there's a lot there already. He's not going to be asked to take, you know, he took about 11 shots per game on the entire season, and even when he was on his his big eaters, he was still in, like, the 12 range. I don't think it's going up from 12 and a half. Maybe you see the assists bump up a little bit, but again, Boncaro's going to handle the ball, Franz is going to handle the ball, Cole Anthony's going to handle the ball off the bench. They have a lot of initiators on that team. Markel profiles as someone that could be kind of like a clean single to right on draft night. You're probably not going to get a home run with him. If you take him at like 70 or wherever we think he might go, you know, best case scenario, he's in the 60s probably. Worst case, he's in the 90s. It's pretty safe, especially given the fact that, believe it or not, actually, again, most of this season he was pretty healthy. That's the thing you'd worry about, I suppose. But I don't I don't think that there's a Markel that's like going top 35, top 40 next year. I don't think there's a big home run in that swing. And there's probably not, on the same token, there's probably not a swing and a miss. Because we've seen now that his stuff profiles well. And then for Wendell Carter Jr., he's always going to be drafted right around where he should be drafted. He's a second center. Someone's going to... You're gonna. Someone's gonna be in a league where someone's like, "I think this is the Wendell breakout year," and some random dude or dudette or whoever in their league is gonna take him at like sixty, and everyone else is gonna go, "Oh!" But in every other league, he's probably gonna go around eighty, like he always does here lately, and he's probably gonna be just behind that on a per game basis. But no one's really gonna care because his free throw number is meh, but he didn't take that many. His field goal number is pretty good on eh, decent volume, does not do that much defensively, which is a super weird thing. I think people think about Wendell Carter Jr. and they're like, oh yeah, hyper-athletic big man. He definitely gets steals and blocks. He doesn't. He's a field goal percent, rebounds, sort of scoring center that you can probably get in the 80 range and will probably fill some sort of requisite need on your fantasy team. And then the other good news with Orlando is that they're probably kind of earmarking next year, this upcoming 2023-24 to 24 campaign, as one where they want to fight for the last playoff spot. So you're going to get a team where guys are playing through little injuries to try to make a run at it. And that's good. We don't know their schedule. They might have a terrible playoff schedule. But as these guys go, and, and Jonathan Isaac, you're, you're on your own island with this one, the guys that are upright most of the time, are probably not going to get scheduled rest days down the stretch. You're probably not going to get the shutdown stuff. You're gonna That's going to allow you to probably have some streaming opportunities down the stretch with guys like Anthony or Gary Harris or Suggs or whoever, guys that you're not going to play the entire season. But the the bigger names, the Fultz, the Wendell, the Franz, that type of stuff, at, and the Boncaro, at least you can probably look at them and go, well, these guys are going to try to play the whole season. Whether or not they do, we never really know on day one. But we can... You can handicap trying to play the full year. 
And that has to be a part of your calculus when you're looking at games played for a player. It's really, it's basically impossible to predict how many games played someone is going to land on, but you can give them a window, a range of games played. Is this player even going to try to get near 80? And if the answer is yes, that's the 10th category we've talked about many times on this show. We'll probably do a lesson learned on the 10th category. Durability. It's not even really durability. It's the plan. Is the plan for this player to try to go for the season? Whether or not they can, that stuff fluctuates. Some guys get hurt more than others. Yes, it's true. Some guys are extraordinarily injury-prone, and other guys are super-duper-duper durable, and there's like two or three names on each one of those. But, you know, the 98% of the NBA falls in this midsection where you're handicapping their target and not what's actually going to happen because you just can't know. Shout out, by the way, to our fantastic baseball division because thanks to those guys, I have a fantasy baseball team in third place right now. And I admit, I don't know what the hell I'm doing. (laughs) I drafted Max Muncy because as someone who watches a lot of Dodgers games, I was like, yeah, this guy's going to bounce back. But other than that, uh, pretty much everything that I've done so far this season has been on the shoulders of our fantasy baseball guys. Uh, So thank you to those dudes because they've been righteous. Ethos Fantasy BB if you want to follow those guys. Also, it's good to have Clayton Kershaw on your fantasy team. Number three pitcher, I think, in fantasy baseball. Anyway, go give them a follow before we talk here about uh, a little NBA playoff stuff. NBA playoff stuff. That's the that's the hashtag, right, on Twitter? Hashtag playoff stuff. A couple of series got rolling over the weekend, and a couple of series finished up over the weekend. Lakers demolished the Grizzlies on Friday. Warriors spanked the Kings on Sunday after the Kings spanked the Warriors on Friday. They sent that one to seven. Pretty damn good effort by Sacramento when you consider that uh, De'Aaron Fox was playing with a broken finger on his shooting hand. That's really rough. You feel for Sacramento a little bit. Would they would they have won that series if he was fully healthy? I honestly don't know because he did have still a good shooting game in Golden State. But just overall... He didn't look the same to me after that. Horrible shooting game to close out the series. King shot 37.5% in that last ball game, and Steph went nuts for 50. I mean, that was Steph against everybody. Everyone was terrible. <laughs> Demonis Sabonis finally had a decent game in the last one. I thought they the Kings really needed more out of Sabonis in that series. And to me, there are a few things that Sacramento is going to be looking to do as they kind of pivot towards next year. First of all, teams are going to be a little bit better prepared for them, so they're going to have to be ready for that. They did not have a target on their backs at all this year, and Sacramento will have a little target on them next season. People are like, all right, this team is good now. we got to get our ducks in a row. Uh, the regular season, I think Sacramento's still not going to have much trouble with, but it really looked like the playoffs kind of came at Sabonis fast. And that happens to guys when they sort of get that true someone's gonna beat you up experience it happens to pretty much everybody their first time in the playoffs when it's like wait why am i getting manhandled and i'm there's no whistles how are these teams so well prepared for me now where and it unfortunately it reveals how little teams actually care about the regular season they just everybody just throws their fastball every game in the regular season and they hope that it works out in the playoffs there's just so much adjusting 
But overall, great season for Sacramento. They got a lot to be proud of. The improvement of Keegan Murray towards next year, that I think will be a, a pretty big deal for uh, what the Kings can do. And then what do they do around the fringes? We'll see. Another big offseason coming up in Sacramento. I know their fans are pleased, as they should be. Uh, so damn close, though, here. That's tough. Tough break. Seven gamer. Um, elsewhere, over the weekend, we don't need to talk about Lakers, Grizzlies all that much, although you know I'd love to because that was just a complete domination. Anthony Davis, that was one of the best defensive games I think I've ever seen anyone play. Just completely swallowed them by himself on defense. That, and guys funneled the right way, but... We did talk on Friday's show about how I thought Denver was being dramatically underrated coming into this series, and sure enough, they spanked the Suns in Game 1, mostly with effort. That was an effort spanking. Denver 49 rebounds, Phoenix 38. Denver 9 turnovers, Phoenix 16. Denver had 14 steals. Suns kind of coasted into this one. Because they were coasting against the Clippers and they got away with it because the Clippers didn't have any of their superstars. Denver has their guys. We'll see if the Suns wake up in the next one. And we'll talk about that in just a second here. Um, the other one over the weekend, Heat beat the Knicks. That was another thing I said on Friday's podcast. I said, how are you guys still betting against Miami? They just handled the Bucks, And people were like, but the Knicks. And I'm like, yeah, but the Knicks played a Cavs team that had... Just no flow at all in the playoffs. The organization for Cleveland was really bad in the postseason. And the Heat, that's just not them this time of year. So Heat up 1-0. Suns up 1-0. A couple of the series getting going here that we didn't get to cha uh, a chance to discuss on Friday. Um, one of them that didn't have a line yet. That was Boston and Philadelphia. Boston is a minus 525 series favorite. The only reason you'd look at Philly on the series price, price excuse me, at 375 plus 375 is if you think Joel Embiid is back early in the series, but to me, that's not, that's a too big of a gamble. Uh, Warriors minus 145 favorites over the Lakers. Um, so here's the thing. Uh, Warriors didn't have to play that hard in the fourth quarter of game seven, but they did still have to go seven. And I know that that's such a remedial analysis, but teams off seven-game series are often horrible in game one of their next one. So, yes, I actually think the Lakers have a terrific chance to steal game one in Golden State, and then you'll see the series kind of settle in a little bit after that. Uh, but if you feel like I do, which is I think the Warriors are going to be a bit gassed in this. I know Steph is sort of never gassed, but everybody else will be a little bit. And the Lakers had plenty of time to get themselves rested and recovered. Uh, Lakers catching four in the game is interesting. Lakers at plus 125 on the series is interesting. But Lakers at plus 160 for the game is the best price you're getting out of that stuff. And not surprisingly... The initial move here is, you know, what's is that even though money's coming in, that tickets are coming in on the Warriors, that number has come down. It opened at minus 205. It's dropped to minus 180 for Golden State. Early, early, early money is on the Lakers, despite what appears to be a consensus among talking heads that the Warriors are going to win the series. And I feel like this happens every year. And, you know, nothing is is 100%. So we have to, I have to always add that caveat. But, like, Go back and look at 
teams off of Game 7s in Game 1 of the following series, it doesn't usually go well. Especially if the opponent has had a moment to relax. If it's like two teams off Game 7s, okay, fine. Then it's just like two boxers on their knees flailing at each other. Um, Lakers are just going to throw everything they have at Steph Curry in Game 1 and assume everybody else is going to be too tired to beat them. Uh, especially, I mean, you know, they only have one game off. Warriors only had one day off today. So I know I'm looking ahead a little bit, but that's the one. So uh, again, like if, if you want if you feel like I feel, and we can talk more about that game tomorrow uh, because it doesn't happen until tomorrow, but the best price you'd get on the Lakers would be the money line for the individual game for game one. That's, you got to be looking at price. But let's talk about what's happening tonight. Forget the series prices for a minute. Um, I, I don't really think that there's much of a value on either of those. Unless you thought, like, after the Lakers win, you could go get the Warriors on a, a plus-money series price, I guess. Something you could consider. Whatever. Suns Nuggets. Nuggets minus four. Total of 228.5. Um, again, you know, Phoenix was not ready for game one. No one ever really stops the Nuggets when they're at full strength. We saw that in the bubble, and that was the last time they were at full strength, basically, before this postseason. Uh, it's a weird thing to say, but Denver series, most playoff series tend to get slowly kind of lower and lower scoring as you go. Denver series are not always that same way because they basically just score. <laughs> almost all the time. So teams are always sort of fighting to keep up. And for the Suns, they just got to take better care of the ball and actually rebound a little bit, and they'll be okay. That'll bring the Nuggets total down a little bit. It'll bring the Suns total up a little, but I do think that number is relatively accurate, and I wouldn't bet into that. Uh, this will be a tighter ball game. Four is not that much for a favorite to cover. Uh, and we, you know, we've seen the Nuggets. Like The problem, of course, is that Someone's going to foul down the stretch if it's close, and then you could go up and over four to five and blah, blah, blah. So I don't really much care for this line on either the side or the total for Suns Nuggets. I, I think this is going to be a better ball game, though. If you could get five and a half or six with Suns, that would be a very different story. But uh, this one opened at four and a half and came down, and I don't think I want to deal with that. Celtics nine and a half point favorites over the 76ers, total of 214 and a half, with, again, a very doubtful Joel Embiid. Um, I would expect this to be a slightly higher scoring game, which is odd to say, even without Embiid there, uh, because I think you'll see the Sixers try to run a little bit more. Um, you'll see less post-up offense, so it's going to be you know hard and pick and roll and try to get into something quickly because this the Sixers lost their best advantage. And I feel like on the Celtics side, Boston has been at times this year prone to just trying to outscore teams, and there's probably going to be a little bit of that with the Sixers missing their guy. As far as the side goes, it's not double digits, but if it hits double digits, I would probably look at the underdog because almost every double-digit underdog in the playoffs or play-in so far has covered. I don't know if it's all of them, but almost every one of them. So a couple of thoughts on that ballgame as well. Happy that we're back to a couple games a day here. Should be fun. Have a wonderful Monday, everybody, as we wrap things up here on Fantasy NBA today. I am Dan Vesperis. I don't think I ever even said hello today. Thank you for listening, everybody. Welcome to a new week, the fourth, I believe, official week of the fantasy basketball offseason. And we are one day into it now. 4.2. <laughs> All right. Later, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow. And we will actually see you tomorrow. We'll do YouTube with that one as well. 
Later.